Super Talk Mississippi media production. State Treasurer David McRae has put millions back into the hands of Mississippi citizens, expanding the state's affordable college and career savings program and also returning record amounts of unclaimed money. Check out how Treasurer David McRae's office can help you, your business, or your organization. Treasury.ms.gov. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to midday super talk mississippi i'm your host gerard gibbard along with rhino in the element wealth studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts fodder and fine music as we kick off a brand new week rhino we are here it's a little warm outside we just kind of skip spring well we are halfway through the month of may yeah but dang it's uh i'm seeing uh, he, yeah, there's some nines in front of those numbers now. Right. And uh, feels like over 100 on the coast, I saw today, because of the humidity. If the weatherman got it right. I got you. But it's not raining, which is positive. I mean, there's so. a potential for some showers, maybe even a little scattered thunderstorm Yeah, across central and, I believe, south Mississippi today. Yep. But... You, it's like coin to toss. It's like 50%. Right. Scattered variety. It is National Police Week. Law enforcement are celebrated during National Police Week. was established by President John F. Kennedy in 1962, May 14th through May the 20th. But today is Peace Officers Memorial Day as well. So we certainly extend our gratitude to those who are in law enforcement that honor and serve our nation. We are um, in our communities, of course. We are grateful for their service and their sacrifice and their risk. Uh, It seems like a, a pretty dicey job these days, does it not? You don't do it for the money either. Not a highly compensated position in society. But we are grateful to all those, certainly in the great state of Mississippi. We've got fantastic law enforcement, in my view. Some may take exception to that, and that's fine. But I think we do, and I'm grateful for their service. Speaking of where we need some law enforcement, that'd be at the border. Jeez. It's kind of like Swiss cheese without the cheese part. Streaming across were 83,000 migrants illegally. And, of course, the president, as you know, deployed the military down there. But all they're doing is processing. It's not like they're down there to guard the border. 
really does appear that the goal is to overwhelm the system and to bring it down to the point that Americans cry, Uncle, please, government, bail us out. Speaking of government bailing us out, I know this comes as a shock to many, but a former aide to Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in honor of Tucker Carlson, will refer to as Sandy. Sandy from Westchester. He loved to call her that. Turns out that a former aide is now, has left the Congresswoman's office. A 33-year-old named Justine Medina worked for the campaign for much of 2020, earned about 35 grand doing that, has left and is now a senior official with the New York State Communist Party. Why are you not surprised about this? <laughs> with the New York State has been recently named the co-chair of the New York Communist League. You know, when I see stuff like this, it's hard to imagine that that's happening in this country. But, you see, they don't really live under the horrors of communism. Like, go to Caracas, Venezuela. Go to North Korea. See how much you like it. And if you've been paying attention to inflation in uh, in our country, of course you have. But I caught a report this weekend in Caracas, in the nation of Argentina. Uh, pardon me, in Argentina. Caracas is Venezuela. In the nation of Argentina. Right next door there. Inflation. 97%. 97%. That just reported by the various news sources. 97%. Wait, how can that be when the government's in charge and running the economy? Surely they wouldn't produce that kind of crippling inflation, would they? So they're set to unveil a set of emergency measures in an effort to stem additional currency losses. They're going to raise their interest rate up considerably. So, incredible. Incredible. So, in fact, the interest rate there is over 90%. Fathom that. You can't borrow money, obviously. That's all in an effort to combat inflation. In April, it was 109% was inflation. 109! Unbelievable. But, again, you want to take people like this former Ocasio-Cortez aide, who's now the co-chair of the New York Communist Party, and say, well, why don't you just carry yourself down to Argentina? Have fun. Or... Nearby Caracas, Venezuela, same situation. Shortage of every staple of life. Ridiculous inflation. But the government's in control. How could that happen? 
I mean, the government, you know, they're all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipotent. They don't make such mistakes. They're better equipped to manage the economy, are they not? No. That's what they tell us, though. Well, they're idiots. Well, we know that. Yes, that we have totally established. Anybody that has to brainwash themselves into believing, but communism hasn't really been given a fair shake. It's never really been tried. (laughs) You know they are beyond stupid. They're that level of stupid that when you insult them, they might think it's a compliment. It is incredible. I, I totally agree with you. And it is incredible that you even have to think about that and go there. Meanwhile, our old friend Liz Warren, speaking of communists, uh, you know her, she's the one that, hey, hon, have a beer. <laughs> Would you please do it that one for us? It's always entertaining. In his own freaking house. <laughs> well, she says that... Student debt is a huge problem, now up to about $1.9 trillion. And she's, of course, calling for the president's plan to forgive it to be implemented. And what she says is that the GOP has no interest in forgiving student debt, but rather they want the Trump tax cuts to help billionaires and corporations. They're more concerned about them than hardworking Americans. Because, of course, billionaires and corporations don't work hard. So what she's basically saying is the 500 or so billionaires in the country should pay for tens of millions education where they received degrees in intersectionality, gender studies, or something. I really am wondering what the heck they spent all this money on, because I did get an email from the U.S. Department of Education, localized to the Magnolia State. They're trying to play on emotions. Between October 2021 and May 2023, the department has approved nearly 6,000 borrowers in Mississippi for more than $488 million in loan forgiveness. Six thousand, not even, not even six. They couldn't say six thousand with a straight face, so they had to say nearly six thousand. <laughs> it comes to eighty-two thousand dollars per borrower. They want to forgive. That's just unbelievable. Uh, but that she, so she basically blames it on the producers in society for not coming to the financial aid of the non-producers. I'm not saying everybody that got student loans is not producing, but I'm saying there's a whole bunch of them, as you know, that got worthless degrees, signed up for it, and they can't make ends meet, and even if they're working, they obviously can't pay their debt. So it's somebody else's responsibility. That's how they see it. They just This whole communist thing with AOC's former aide got me thinking about that. Auditor Shad White on middays at 11.05. We're right back in the Element Well Studios after this message. Now back to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi.
are back in the Element Well Studios, kicking off a brand new week here on Middays. Here at home in Mississippi, Mississippi Parole Board member Tony Smith has resigned. He voted against the release of double murderer James Williams III. That release is pending. He's been on the board for less than three years, was appointed by Governor Tate Reeves in 2020 in his first year in office. He resigned officially this past Friday, expected, of course, to hold the position for the entire four-year term, but did not, and this is an interesting situation going on with the parole board. Now, it is our understanding that the individual votes are not published as a roll call where you can tell how board members voted. Is that right, Rhino? Is that what you understand? If they are, they are in. They are published in a filing cabinet that you got to go to physically because it's not digitized anywhere. Yeah, we couldn't find it. So, Mister Mister Smith did not say explicitly that the release of Williams was the cause was the driving reason for his resignation. He didn't say that. Of course, Representative Price Wallace from Mendenhall was on the Gallo show this morning discussing it. And uh, you probably heard on on our news clip, uh, on our news, I should say, a clip of Representative Wallace discussing it. And he said, you know, you still need to serve your time, even if you have been somewhat rehabilitated, you need to endure the appropriate punishment. I'm paraphrasing somewhat, but that's basically what he said. So so an interesting development here, for sure, and the governor will now be responsible for appointing a replacement for uh, Mr. Tony Smith, who has resigned from the board, the parole board. Interesting. You got uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, Mayorkas, Alejandro Mayorkas, on Sunday was praising the Biden administration's policies on the handling of the border. Praising it. What are they looking at? What are they watching? Or are they, probably, is the better the better question, the more appropriate question. They can't be looking at the same image as we are. I don't think so. Of course, the left-wing media is not even covering it, essentially. And the coverage that some are giving is a bit disingenuous because there were reported... There were reports they were expecting in excess of 18,000 crossings a day. Yeah. Well, when the actual number comes in at 17,500, they're calling that a win because it's a couple hundred less than they were expecting. A win. That's a win. 
It's incredible. You know, it it reminds as well of how polarized are the perspectives, how opposite are the perspectives of Trump's CNN town hall in New Hampshire last week. Most on the right have described it as a grand slam home run. And on the left, it's like the biggest disaster ever, calling out CNN CEO for even hosting it. How dare you platform that man? Incredible. It's like, were you watching the same thing? How could the opinions be that different? I mean, Because nothing a close. lot of those opinions are based on uh, straw men or fabrications or just outright lies because I guarantee you half the people with an opinion on that didn't even watch it. Oh, I agree. I told, Well, not many watched it to start with. It is CNN. But it was a ratings boost for them, because they had, what was it, three million viewers before that, and then during it was, what, six, six and a half, seven? Yeah. And then after it went off, after they kind of scurried out of there a little early and went to the panel of people... <laughs> Two and a half hour panel. hated them, <laughs> it died back down to three million. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much CNN as friends and family, right? That's who, who watches. But this is what... Again, is amazing. So if you took any of us, we're, we're flawed humans. And I'm going to use an accounting analogy here. If you created a T account, what we call a classic accounting T account, which oh, means... I just had flashbacks. <laughs> debits on the left, credits on the right. No! <laughs> I was promised I'd never have to do this again. <laughs> so... <laughs> what you get is an analysis from the left that only sees the debits. Everything that they analyzed, reviewed, discussed, picked apart, just the debit side of things. And on the right, it was just the credit side of things. What happened to just plain old-fashioned objective reporting? What happened to that? So one thing that I don't really care about... I think it could be argued that the Daily Show happened. Okay. When you have an entire generation that their only real access to or interest in the news of the day came through a comedian playing a character. That's true. So you have to have infotainment. It can't just be information. That's a shame. I think the nation is disserviced by that approach. I've said before on the program, I find the Boston Globe to be arguably the most left-leaning newspaper of a major city in the country. And every Friday, they publish a, uh, a little sort of newsletter called Fast Forward. And it's written by one Teresa Hannafin. So, I mean, she was incensed over the Trump town hall. Says, starting her starting statement in the report, beginning statement, 
So a few things came out of that otherwise useless CNN town hall with Trump, the sexual abuser, the other night. Just jump right into it. He admitted taking government documents from the White House to Mar-a-Lago. Get me a tape of that town hall, said Special Prosecutor Jack Smith. He disparaged E. Jean Carroll as a whack job just one day after he was ordered to pay her millions of dollars for defaming her. On immigration, Trump voted to bring back family separation. That is, separating children from parents. Can I be first, asked Ivanka. It's a true story. That's the report. But nothing about Trump's discussion of how he would approach the economic melees we have in the country. And, and if you watch the deal, and you've seen it reported, very first thing he said was, drill, baby, drill. Totally agree. Same thing we've said here. You want to bring the cost down to stuff, you boost the supply of energy, a component in everything we consume. He gets that. He understands that. He did that while he was president. So you have to give him credit for that. Because inflation was virtually non-existent, even though we were still producing deficits and still printing money to make ends meet, because we don't collect collect off revenue to balance the budget. But that's what they focused on, and the ride, of course, was mostly focused on that those economic policies and calling attention to what was a positive economic era in this country while he was president. And I totally agree. Now, Trump also said that he could end the war in Ukraine in 24 hours. Not buying that, honestly. He also said he would end deficit spending in his first term and totally pay off the debt by the end of his second term. He famously said that repeatedly leading up to his election in 2016. That's another one of those situations where I don't think candidates should go making such promises that are impossible to keep without a specific plan, at least on how they're going to achieve that, that's believable. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios, State Auditor Shad White at 1105. You're listening to Middays with Gerard. Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Wealth Studios. We appreciate you joining us today. Tomorrow, 
Middays is going to be at Mississippi Blood Services off of Lakeland Drive in Flowood. Donate blood and be a hero in disguise for Mississippi patients. Donate this month to receive a Hero in Disguise t-shirt while supplies last. That's where we're going to be. Mississippi Blood Services, middays on the road again tomorrow. Enjoyed being up at uh, Itawamba Community College on Friday. Great graduation ceremonies. Enjoyed visiting with all the good folks there. Dr. J. Allen, of course, does a fine job, as uh, do the faculty and staff. And what a beautiful setting that is. I know you're from nearby. It really is. It's grown a lot. It has, hasn't it? A lot. Were you surprised that the mayor of Fulton said they've got lots of terracotta pipes underground? Did you catch that during the interview for their water and sewer? Terracotta. Hmm. But that's what we used back Back in those days, that was the material typically used. 60, 70-ish years ago, I think. Yeah. And graduation, of course, occurring across this great nation. You've uh, likely seen people, of course, rightfully celebrating the event on social media. Lots of photos. Always enjoy seeing those of proud families with the graduates. And, of course, the commencement addresses are always curious. Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey, pardon me, delivered one to her alma mater, Tennessee State University. You know, I've always thought, Rhino, that commencement addresses should be a reflection perhaps, of the time students were going through their college experience. Certainly need to do that. But more importantly, they should be uplifting, inspirational, encouraging, maybe a bit instruction that you would perhaps get from wisdom of the speaker. At a minimum, they need to be positive, why would you want to be so negative to 20, mostly 20-something-year-olds, young 20s, with their whole professional lives in front of them? Not Oprah. In keeping with, I guess, what we're seeing sweep academia across the country, she delivered what could be described as a woke commencement address. She <laughs> wasted no time. She really began with police brutality. Says, I've been thinking a lot about how much of your lives have already been spent grappling with the extremely complex issues of our time. Because you are the generation that is forced to depend on body cams to obtain justice. And then she moved on to January 6th and got into that, of course. And she complimented the graduates for having abided by COVID-19 mandates. She, <laughs> she complimented them on that. 
But, and of course, she, she trashed the GOP. She mentioned problems with the conservative majority Supreme Court, that the Supreme Court is being corrupted. She said that voting rights are being gutted. She said the debt ceiling is being held hostage. The LGBTQ plus IA community, whatever, is under attack. The climate is changing. The Cold War is back. Oh, doesn't that make you feel so fired up when you're graduating? Let me go out and set the world on fire before it burns up, according to Oprah. In fairness, I would argue there's three-quarters of the graduating seniors that are not paying a lick of attention to anything said at any commencement speech, unless you have some celebrity that's there just because they're celebrity. Like, they may have some inspiring words. They may have something of worth to tell you. But the, the one that comes to mind is, like, Michael Keaton giving a commencement speech. And he had some great things to say, but the only thing anybody remembers from his speech is at the very end where he goes, I'm Batman. That <laughs> was good. Of course, the former talk show host, who has Mississippi ties, of course, though she never acknowledges them that I'm aware of, and I'm not sure she's ever done anything for the state of Mississippi, definitively, directly. She said... With respect to gun control, the leaders are behaving like children. The children are being gunned down by military-grade assault rifles. But when you look at the statistics, and I know you've looked into this somewhat, and you look at the gun crimes, the deaths by gun in this country, it's overwhelmingly handguns. And it's Black people killing black people. Overwhelmingly. So-called... In homicide cases. In, right. in quote-unquote, gun violence, the majority is suicide. Yes, agree. Still a huge problem. Um, uh, some of which is brought on uh, by depression, of course, but drugs flowing across the nation. Though, of course, Secretary Mayorkas says... There's just no problem. Now, on the ceasefire text line, I heard on the latest Super Talk, Super Talk news break that the surge at the border had not materialized. Wasn't quite to the level as expected, but still it's ten to 15,000 a day. I think 18,000, if I'm not mistaken, was the count on Friday. You may have seen reports that they're being bussed all over the place. I mean, they're just being dispersed into America's cities. One uh, hotel in New York had rooms blocked off for a wedding. You see this? And the hotel ended up having to cancel the rooms so they could house migrants, illegals. And the wedding couple's just out. The wedding party. What's that all about? So we're putting them ahead of law-abiding, paying Americans. That ain't right. Veterans, you've seen them kicked out. Examples of that. Communities in Chicago that you wouldn't think would be complaining are complaining. 
And I'm not talking about white people here. I'm talking about minorities as well attending these town hall meetings with their city leaders and saying, this is ridiculous. We don't want this. And the number of illegals they're dealing with is between 100 and 500. Right. Not 15,000 a day like at the border. Right. And their images... people's front yards are just full of people camping out in El Paso. El Paso is ridiculous. And you know that mayor still, still maintains he did nothing when Biden went to El Paso. Not the border specifically, but to El Paso not so long ago. And remember how clean everything looked, pristine? He says he didn't do anything. He didn't do any prep for the president coming down. But if you look at the images while the president was there versus what we saw over the last week, they don't even look remotely similar whatsoever. It, why don't they just be honest about this? And by the way... The opinion of the left on this matter is really ridiculous. And you got Hakeem Jeffries and others, of course. He's probably the most outspoken member, certainly, of the House because he's the minority leader. But he said something this weekend about right-wing Americans have no compassion and we've got to be compassionate and humane and all that sort of stuff. But it's their policies that are causing this inhumanity. we got to abide by their goofy definition of compassion? No thanks. Without any regard for what truly does happen, kids being human trafficked into the country, exploited sexually by these cartels, etc., who were making out like bandits on this deal? Unbelievable. They just won't be upfront and honest about it. We are coming right back in the Element Well Studios, final segment of this hour, and then Auditor Shad White. That'll come in after the news break at the top of the hour. Stay with us. We thank you for joining us. You're listening to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. In other commencement address news, the President of these United States, Joseph R. Biden, he spoke Saturday at Howard University, an HBCU. <sighs> Unbelievable. And more than a dozen cap and gowned Howard students stood with their backs to him. And they had signs. It was a sort of a silent protest over what they referred to as too many forms of white supremacist violence. And 
Biden says, hate never goes away and silences complicity. We know, the president goes on, that American history has not always been a fairy tale. He said there's always been a push and pull between the idea that all people are created equal and, quote, the harsh reality that racism has long torn us apart. He said he's running again to redeem the soul of the nation. That's what he told us last time, wasn't it? How's that working out? He's divided us perhaps more than any other president. Now, the left likes to say it was Trump that did that. And I can certainly see where Trump would be perceived as a divisive figure, but I don't see how you could compare that. And that's mainly from Trump's rhetoric. But Biden, on the other hand, it's action. Started with the 31 executive orders the day he was inaugurated, insisting that, actually ordering that, climate change and racial equity be the centerpieces of all policymaking at the agency level. And as we've said so many times before, it is the deep state agencies that run the country, not the Congress, not the folks we actually elect and send to Washington to do so. He um, goes on to basically say that white supremacy, the number one, I mean, unequivocally, the number one challenge facing the nation is white supremacy. Now, I'm certainly not saying that the nation is absent any racism, but the number one issue, can they give me some specific examples of how that is the case? Oh, you didn't hear about the guy in New York on the subway? That's... That's all the examples oh, they need, right? I see. Because this person was compelled to act, maybe to put down what could have been a really bad situation. And if you hear them tell it, he acted completely alone. No, there wasn't two other people helping him was restrain this person. Unbelievable. I just, uh, it you know, doesn't fit the agenda, as they say. It was pretty funny when they gave him the honorary doctorate yeah. and their their reasoning. Which was? For, for his sound analytical intellect and popularity <laughs> on both sides of the aisle. What the heck were they smoking? you got to be kidding me. Man, oh man. So the students that turned their back to him while he was speaking, they said, they made a statement, we as graduates stand united for change, for black lives globally. And though it doesn't matter to me, and it's perfectly fine with me, have you ever noticed that the HBCUs are the least diverse? You ever notice that? Seems like it, doesn't it? I don't even think it seems like it. All you got to do is look at any, any enrollment figures. But yet, it's the big, white, mostly controlled by white people in universities that have these gigantic DEI departments. 
that go out of their way to make every accommodation for minorities, so-called BIPOC, as they like to describe them. But the, it just seems ironic. It's because deep down, Democrats know in the part of their soul they don't talk about at parties that they're the racists. That's true. If you held them to the standard of racism from just a decade ago, it'd be plastered all over their faces. That's true. That's absolutely true. And and maybe that's why they invest so much effort, so many cycles, and so much money, honestly. Because it's an industry, the grievance industry, to, to try to distance them, themselves from that past. I'm all about equality. I'm not about equity. It's just simple as that. And that is unacceptable to them. we got to share with you, I didn't get to it last week, what's going on with respect to all this DEI stuff at Texas A&M. It's nuts. But right now, it's time for Fox News and Super Talk News, and then Auditor Shad White. Stay with us. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back with Hour 2 of Middays. And, of course, today at noon, it's Ricky Matthews with Super Talk Outdoors. But joining us now is the state auditor of the great state of Mississippi, Shad White. Auditor White, always good to see you, sir. Yeah, thank you for having me, brother. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. So you've been, uh, let's just say, exposing lots of stuff, I think, as, as part of your work. And uh, recently, you did a little work on the city of Jackson, mm-hmm. our capital city, yep. and revealed um, some spending that looks like it might not be totally in conformance with uh, with regulations, shall we say, statute. But the first thing I'd like for you to do, if it's okay, sir, is explain the auditor's role. Yep in the financial affairs at the municipal level. Yep. It's uh, it's an interesting little quirk in the law. The state auditor's office is actually not allowed to audit cities in Mississippi. We can audit counties, state agencies, uh, school districts, basically any public entity, but not cities. It's a little quirk in the law. So the question is, well, who audits the cities then? Well, if the city is of a certain size, and Jackson's our biggest city municipality in the state, they have to hire a private CPA firm to come in and do their audit. So I routinely get the question, hey, when are you going to audit Jackson? Uh, for whatever reason, I never get the question, when are you going to audit South Haven or Tupelo? But I, I always get the question, when are you going to audit Jackson? Sure. And the answer is, well, we're not allowed to audit cities. But I can tell you, because Jackson's big and it's had... Uh, an audit every single year by a private CPA firm. If you want to read Jackson's audits, you can go read it. What I realized over time is that 
uh, audits are important and necessary, but they're written by auditors, and so they're written in audit language. Uh, and so if somebody says that we see an excessive number of accounts receivable in the business enterprise fund hyphen water, to a normal person, that means nothing at right, all. Right. So so what we did in this case is we looked back at 20 years' worth of Jackson's audits and analyzed them and translated them basically from audit language to normal human language so sure. that your taxpayer, that your voter, could see where the city is financially. And unfortunately, as you said, we saw some disturbing trends and some really basic business model problems for the city. Yeah, and and let me be clear that a lot of what uh, can stick out as concerns may be perfectly legal. Yes. And that's so there's sort of no accountability for just mismanagement. That's right. That's right. As long as the the uh, the numbers are supported and done in accordance with contract law, et cetera, there may be bad decisions and they may not be the, the most efficient use of funds. But they're not against the law. That's right. That's that's part of living in a world where we elect folks to be the mayors or the city councils or the representatives or whatever it may be. You live with the decisions of that person. They may be doing things legally, but uh, they may not be doing things the best way in the world. So very simple example and probably the top takeaway from that report was that the city has had an explosion in the amount of unpaid water bills over the course of, well, really 20 years, but yeah. especially in the last five, six years. And so is that illegal? Is it illegal to not do your job particularly well and not do a good job collecting water bills? Well, I don't know of a statute where you could go arrest somebody for not doing your job particularly well. Is it a massive, massive problem? Absolutely, it's a massive problem. Yeah. Water systems are intended to work almost like a business. You're supposed to take in revenue for providing a service, the water, and then you're supposed to use that revenue to keep the system going, to replace pipes, to pay for maintenance, to do all that sort of stuff. If you don't take in the revenue, and you know this from your business background, uh, and you're spending a bunch of money providing the service... In the private sector, we have a word for that. It's called bankruptcy. In the public sector, it's called just another Tuesday, apparently. And that's that's the whole problem here. That's what I mean when there's a there's a basic fundamental uh, business model problem at the heart of the Jackson Water System. Yeah, and and something else that uh, you're aware of is uh, what we've now learned is is the city of Jackson spending a whole bunch of money on sanitization mm-hmm. of, of buildings and the zoo and, and some other things during, during the COVID era. And one of the things, you and I have talked about this before, I feel like I've been crusading on this for 25 years or more, but we have these statutes in Mississippi that allow public sector entities to contract for certain services mm-hmm. without competitive bidding. Yep. They've been on the books for 50 years, maybe. Yep. And, and so municipalities and counties seem to, I guess, leverage those provisions more than the state agencies do, in, mm-hmm. in my experience. There's mm-hmm. a vendor to all of them. Yep. So yep. you could literally go out, perhaps, and contract for whomever the governing body, supervisors, mayor, city council, uh, depending on if it's a county or a municipality, whoever they want. Yep. Without competitive bidding, I think we ought to just hire so-and-so over here in this amount. All in favor, say aye. I mean, that's pretty much how it works. Yep. Without the benefit of competitive bidding, this goes on a lot in the state of Mississippi. Mm-hmm. It, but it's perfectly legal. And, and folks should understand, too, 
I think this is overlooked occasionally for, let's say, you're a mayor and, and you're going to avail yourself of that right that you can you know, uh, use a non-competitive process and just go out and hire a, uh, a personal service vendor. You need to know that people are still watching those contracts. Sure. Uh, and so if if you you know hire your cousin, for example, you have broken some ethics laws and, and you're going to pay a price for that. If you get a kickback, you're going to jail. And and that's what we spend a lot of time all day, every day looking for. So there, you know, just because there is that lack of uh, requirement for competitive bidding doesn't mean that nobody's looking. Uh, and, and if folks out there know of cases like that that we need to be looking at, that where there might be criminal violations, somebody's taking a kickback, somebody's hired a relative, whatever it may be, come talk to us about that because we want to look at it. And in the case of the city of Jackson, I think one of the things that came to light is that some of those services were provided and paid for without a contract. Yep. There was no contract yep. involved. Yep. It was just kind of a handshake sort of deal, which is fine if you want to do that in the private sector. But, but illegal in the public sector. That's right. That's right. You that's cannot get paid on no contract. And, right. and we've had to explain that to a bunch of folks all the time. And so that that gives us an entree to look at some of these cases and to see if there's anything more there once we know that there's there's been a basic violation of some statute. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's never a dull day in the auditor's office digging in all this. So the, the, the point I just wanted to kind of hammer is that there's no audit accountability for a just mismanagement or Correct. incompetence. That's exactly right. And that's and, where we're limited. That's right. And that's one of the reasons why we pushed out this analysis to the public to say, look, you may see nothing in here that's illegal, but this is a problem. This is a governance problem right here. Yeah. Uh, and, and nothing, no one-time infusion of cash from the state or the federal government, nothing's going to fix this business model problem until you start collecting water bills. Unbelievable. It's really, really simple. Th- those are the kinds of issues that Jackson is going to have to fix on its own in order to succeed as a city. And really, the success of our state in part hinges on Jackson succeeding. If you look at Alabama, Alabama's economy is growing in large part because Birmingham and Huntsville are growing. Georgia has done really well in the last 20 years because Atlanta has exploded. East Tennessee is doing well because Nashville, Chattanooga, some of those cities are exploding. It, it, Jackson can either be an anchor or it can drive growth in Mississippi. But if we don't get this kind of stuff, and when I say this stuff, I mean the water system and the sewer system and crime, all, all of these basic governance issues figured out, Jackson cannot achieve its potential. Totally agree. And speaking of crime, I know you've done some work in that arena yep. as well. Yep. And uh, I, I read your report. I know you spoke recently as well with mm-hmm. Center for Public Policy. But I read your report, and it, it had some rather eye-opening findings yep. uh, with respect to who is incarcerated in, in Mississippi, please share that. That's right. Well, the way of the way we started looking at this in the auditor's office was we'd seen a spike in homicides in Mississippi. Mississippi, unfortunately, ranks number one, according to the CDC, in the number of per capita homicides compared to every other state. And, of course, Jackson has been one of the most dangerous cities for the last two years running. So I wanted to know what this is costing taxpayers. And bottom line on that is that uh, each new homicide in Mississippi costs taxpayers somewhere between 900000 and $1.2 million per death. Uh, 
that's coming out of your pocket, whether you live in a crime-prone area or not. But more to your point, Gerard, we started looking, too, at, okay, well, who is in our prison system? We keep hearing there's this over-incarceration problem, that we're locking too many people up. Well, one, I can tell you there's a lot of homicides happening in Mississippi. I would rather all those people who are murdering folks be in jail. So that means that actually more people need to be in prison. And, and two, there's this misconception about the people who are in prison right now in Mississippi. People say, well, all those folks in prison, that's just that's a 17-year-old young man who had a joint in his pocket one time and the police locked him up and he's there for 40 years. That's not what's happening. That's not what's happening. Right now, about 22% of the people in a Mississippi prison are there for a drug crime. And some of those folks are there for selling drugs. The public, according to a Vox poll, believes that 61% of people in prison are there for a drug crime. So the the reality does not match up with the narrative that a lot of activists are selling out there. And I think at one time it may have been close to that, but the the trends have crossed. The world has changed. A lot. The world has changed. Since then, yep. We got Auditor Shad White. Can you hang around? Absolutely. We'll talk some more. Auditor Shad White in the Element Well Studios coming right back. Days with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone, in the Element Well Studios. It's midday. We've got Auditor Shad White with us in the studio. So, Auditor, I uh, just share with you a text I received from uh, one of our our local judges. That's a, a yep. friend. You know him as well, and said, "How many of the twenty two percent are multiple offenders?" It's a great question, and he's understanding the point I'm making, which is we're we're typically not locking up a 17-year-old man for getting caught with a joint one time and then throwing away the key. I don't know the exact answer to the question of how many of these 22% of folks who are in prisons who are in prison for uh, drug-related crimes have been there multiple times or arrested multiple times, but what I can tell you is nationally the average person who is let out of prison has been arrested 10 to 12 times at that moment. So again, you hear folks say, we need to give people second chances. We've got to give them a second chance. People mess up one time, we need to give them a good second chance. We give them a second chance in the United States on average. In fact, we give them a third and a fourth and a fifth. What you're asking for is a 13th chance. And, and yeah, I understand that people can be rehabilitated sometimes, but really what we need to think about when we think about prison policy is, yeah, okay, it's going to cost some to imprison a person, but what if that person is on the street, and how much more harm are they doing terrorizing their communities, and what is that costing the taxpayer, too? If they murder somebody, if we arrest them for carjacking and then we let them out because we don't think that's a big deal, and we don't want to pay for their prison time, and they go out and murder somebody, that's going to cost the taxpayers, too. That's the basic point I'm making. And oh, by the way, when they do that, they're probably not going to the neighborhood that you or I live in. They're going to neighborhoods that are historically poor, that are most 
most vulnerable to this kind of crime. And so if you have real compassion for those communities, you ought to be talking about what it's going to take to get the most violent elements of our society off the streets and into prison. That's the big question. And I believe if you went to the people in those communities, the law-abiding citizens, they tell you the same thing. Oh, Gallup has proven it. So Gallup did a poll and asked uh, Americans, and they broke this down by race, how much police presence would you like in your community? 81% of black Americans want the same or more police presence in their community. And so if you listen to the ACLU, you would believe it's the exact opposite yeah. somehow. Yeah. Uh, that, that everybody wants the police gone because they're a dangerous element. No. Of course we see TV headlines and that sort of thing where there's one rotten apple who does something bad as a police officer. But by and large, police officers are out there doing the right thing. They're making the community yeah. Safer. It's important to say this on National Police Week this yeah. week, uh, but but this is the point: is that we have to get past these activists and their narratives and get down to real hard data about what people want and what makes them safe, and then make policy decisions based on those data. I haven't reviewed it in a while, but the figure that sticks in my head is there's some something like 10 million police interactions in this country yep. a year, yep. and just a tiny sliver of those yep. have any sort of issues related that's to That's right. It. Rafael Manguel is a researcher at the Manhattan Institute. His quoted data point on that is 0.03% of arrests involve the use of violent force. But we hold that, they hold that up as that, oh, this is just happening on a widespread basis That's right. and the majority of those interactions. That's and it's right. just not true. It's, it's just, just the only true. ones that get the attention of the media. That's the right. Problem. That's right. And and the more we focus on those, you hate to say it, but the more we focus on those, the less likely talented young people are going to be to want to be police officers in the first place. So when you talk about needing more police on the street, it's not just a money issue, it's a talent pipeline issue. And so we have to, as a society, stop back mouthing police. We need to start talking about the good stuff that police do, and then we have to use that as a way to recruit more people into this very, very important field. Military is the same way. You probably saw these numbers this morning. The military is way, way down yeah. on its recruitment. They cannot miss it, meet their recruitment goals, and I'm in the National Guard. I see this myself all the time. We have trouble recruiting people. Are you surprised that young people don't want to join the military when the left has spent decades telling them that America is systemically racist, yep. that, the, that our country is the, the root of all the problems around the world and then you tell that young person at 18 or 25 or whenever hey we need you to put on a uniform yeah. and risk your life for this institution that we've been demeaning for the last 20 years of your life what young person is going to do that nobody's going to do that we we really have to change the story that we tell ourselves about our country and the stories that we tell ourselves about law enforcement and the military because they're not rooted in truth if you listen to these leftist activists well you've got uh uh, Millie, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that testified before the Congress in the wake of the George Floyd incident that white rage was the number one problem in the military. Yeah. We had the president, I just shared that story, speaking at Howard University commencement exercises this weekend, that said that white supremacy is the number one problem facing the nation. It's I mean, he put absurd. that at the top of the list. Uh, it, you maybe think of something that, that Rhino shared uh, a few weeks ago. You recall, Rhino, that something like of the 8,000 and shoplifting incidents in New York. It, it was. It all came down to like 320 people were. Yeah. 237. Yeah. Yep. So let's just lock up those 237. That's Seems right. like we can solve That's a lot right. of problems, but. Uh, in so many areas of the country, as you know, auditor, we have uh, sort of decriminalized crime. Yep. And we have vilified the victims. Yep. 
Yep, that's exactly right. It, it, to, to take another spin on that same statistic, a former uh, attorney general of the United States wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal several months ago, and his estimate was that about 1% of the population, and they're overwhelmingly males, that 1%, commits all the crime, basically, in the United States, yeah. all the violent crime. And so how do you get at that 1%? How do you identify those people and get them off the streets so that the communities that they live in can be safer? And I'll say this. I think we need more police on the streets. I think we need tougher sentences for those folks. We need to to stop catch and release but really really at the bottom of the problem is the need for data so we we need more crime data so that we can identify that 237 cohort or that that cohort of one percent of people who, who are perpetrating the violent crime identify them watch them and then arrest those folks once they do something illegal and then and then you can incapacitate them then you could take them off the streets and the communities can heal themselves yeah no doubt about it and we should also point out that we can apply nuance and discernment. You can support law enforcement, but oppose law enforcement abuse and, and brutality. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you, those can coexist. Absolutely. In fact, all the all the best law enforcement officers that I know yeah. hold both of those thoughts in their mind at the same time every day because that is the common sense position. Yeah. By and large, police almost all the time are there to make the community safe and do a great job even with the constraints placed on them a lot of times by politicians. And and you, of course, are going to get that horrible, sad incident uh, that occasionally makes big, big news. And that is what people think about the police, unfortunately. And it's just, it's wrong. We have to change the story around that so that more young folks will go into policing and that we can actually solve this problem. This is this is totally solvable in the state of Mississippi. I mean, we, we have a, a high homicide rate, but... The legislature and the governor work together to put more police on the street around the capital zone, and I think that's a great step. That's exactly the kind of stuff we need to be doing. You notice, however, you notice that on the left, none of the leftist activists or politicians can bring themselves to say that more police on the street around the capital is a good thing. They can't bring themselves to say it. I haven't heard a single person on the left say that. And the reason is that they're wedded to this narrative that runs counter to the research. They're wedded to this narrative that, oh, gosh, you know, if I say something good about the police, that everybody will remember George Floyd or whatever it may be, and I'll have to pay a price for it politically. They're not willing to engage with the real facts to protect their own communities. They're not willing to engage with those facts. And that's just a huge problem that we have. But don't you believe on the inside they know? That that is the, the best situation? Yeah, absolutely. They do. Their constituents are telling them. If you believe the Gallup poll, their constituents are telling, uh, really all constituents are telling all of their elected leaders, I want to be safe at night. And part of being safe means that I should occasionally see a police officer around. Everybody has this position. Well, fundamental. this is what's important about you as the auditor, I think, bringing this to the forefront, calling attention to it. You cannot have economic prosperity no. without law enforcement and without safety no. and protection of life and assets. You can't do it. It's proven in, in studies as well. You know, the number of business starts goes down when the number of gunshots in an area goes up. Tax revenue goes down when homicides go up. This is just common sense, but yeah. it's proven by research yeah. as well. So if we want Jackson to be an economic hub, we have to get have to find a way for Jackson to get the crime problem under control. I read sometimes people say, well, the real problem is that the state won't dump resources into Jackson and the state won't give big companies incentives to move to Jackson. That ain't the way economic not, development works. Mm-mm. These companies get to choose from anywhere to put their facilities. Right. They're not coming to us and, and then we say, hey, um, we're not going to give you any money to go to Jackson, but we'll give you a little bit of money to go to 
Madison or right. wherever it is. They're coming to us and they're saying, we are considering coming to Clinton and Birmingham and Atlanta and Chattanooga. Exactly what will right. you do for us? Exactly so, right. so people on the left just don't understand economics. They're not willing to engage with the science. They're not willing to engage with the research, despite their claims of being the party of you know truth and uh, objectivity. So we just have to do a better job of voicing the truth all the time, and, and eventually it'll start to hit. Eventually I people start totally to agree. listen. And here's what we have to commit to do. Um, and regardless of where you go in your political career, now that we have expanded the Capitol Complex Improvement District, we've got more law enforcement in there. Yep. We've changed the dynamic. Yep. We've got to measure the results of that. Bingo. Before and after. Bingo. So often, Auditor, we pass these laws, and then we just kind of forget about it. Yep. We've yep. got to measure it. We'll be able to show the success here, I think. That's what we got to do. That's Appreciate right. you coming on. Always Thank good you, to see you, man. Good to see yeah. you. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk, Mississippi. Back in the Element Well Studios, we appreciate the auditor, Shad White, for joining us in the studios today. Interesting discussion about so many things that are important in the state of Mississippi that affect all of us. I'm going to continue to uh, hammer what I believe is the need to repeal these no-bid personal services statutes. And you don't see any candidates talking about that, ever. Because it's not politically popular when you consider where their support typically comes from. And I'm talking about financial support. And, the, and I think, right now, the average citizen out there, the average voter, not even aware of this. No. And, and there's no reason for you to unless you've participated in it. I just happen to know about it because I've participated in it. My company and the services it offered were not included in those statutes, because they were created before what we did even existed. So they are excluded. But it, but this is happening in Mississippi, and it's especially practiced at the municipal and the uh, county level, and this is where the cronyism comes into play big time. And I've heard folks say, well, you really couldn't competitively bid Things like legal services, which are exempt from competitive bidding. Why can't you? Of course you can. Of course you can. And so I think the state and the citizens would be well served. You you could come together, hire a third party if necessary, some consultants to help you produce what could be some standard sorts of RFPs for larger engagements, and maybe it's just, 
um, smaller sort of bid documents, structures for smaller engagements. You could absolutely do that. Absolutely could do that across the, the range of professional services that are exempt. I believe the taxpayers get fleeced by a lot. All the focus we have from a political perspective on state spending and public spending, this never even comes up. But this, I believe, would save a ton of money and go a long way towards eliminating the cronyism and the backroom deals that exist at those levels. And it and it needs to be taken a hard look at, and we're going to continue to talk to members of the legislature and candidates, I should say, about that as this comes up. And, and again, this recent report about the city of Jackson, hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxpayer money spent in sanitizing Jackson buildings with no oversight, no contracts, all sorts of invoices that have been obtained showing the city just paid money to various services. First, is this something we even needed? And, and secondly... How did those deals come about? Some of them, as we pointed out, didn't even have contracts. Deep clean COVID spray disinfect Thalia Hall, $22,896. Pre-COVID disinfecting of spray of voting precincts, $27,500. So... Not sure that any of that was needed. Wait, 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 wait. How much did it cost for the pre six? $27,500. To, to clean them before they get used, not after they've been used one at a time. They were the invoice dates. I don't know about the details of when the services were provided, but records show the invoices were produced on 4521 and 4721 for that amount. Jeez. What do you think? So, how about infectious, deep, clean COVID spray, the Jackson Police Academy? $18,500. That invoice was issued. But again, none of this done under competitive bidding. And, it, and at least in one case, one of the vendors, no contract. No contract. Total of about two hundred grand, and this is just again the tip of the iceberg on how this stuff works. And I'm not suggesting that every county and city is engaged in uh, these sorts of sort of shady practices. Not suggesting that at all. But I'm saying that the lack of competitive bidding for many of these sorts of services it opens the door for impropriety. And and you learn, as Auditor White said on the program, when you're studying accounting and auditing, opportunity is one of the main things you focus on. Is there an opportunity to misuse money? And if there is, you need to close that gap. And having no bid statutes in place provides plenty of opportunity. 
Ben from Madison on the C Spire text line says, good interview. I agree with most of what the auditor said. I'm just not convinced we are weak on crime in Mississippi when we lead the world in incarceration. Well, we, I think we lead it on a per capita basis. I think the U.S. does, and in Mississippi in particular, right, Ryan? I want to say we're at the top of that list. But is it not the case, Ben, that maybe that's because most of the crime is committed here? We have an outsized amount of crime committed relative to our population. I mean, if if we're locking up people that have been wrongfully convicted – they haven't committed a crime. Sure, I agree, that's a problem. But if we're locking up people because they're a risk to society and they need to be taken off the street, and they did it, the shame is we have too much of that in our state. If that produces data that shows that we've got uh, the highest percentage of our population as a percentage of our population in jail. That sounds like we have a moral problem. Let's see, that's where one person walks through spraying Lysol, says Thomas in Greenwood, for twenty-seven grand. right? That's what I was trying to figure out, because a gallon of Lysol costs 25 bucks, well, and it covers 200, 300 square feet. So, so think about this, and I don't know the answer. I'm just putting this out there. How many companies, private sector companies, that occupy and operate in buildings – how many of them engage third-party professional services to do this so-called very expensive deep cleaning? I, I don't know. But it'd be interesting to see if... I'd almost be willing to bet a private company wasn't paying $27,000 to get their space cleaned. I agree. And where was that that I said? Um, that was the voting precincts. Right. Style Yamara Hall was 22896 bucks, And I don't know anything about this. And and but I'm just kind of rationalizing that one big sort of room like that, and there's some other small rooms as well in Thayamara Hall, would be easier to do than a chopped up office building, for example. That may not be the case. I don't know. I'm not familiar with that. I just just kind of seems logical to me. Uh, let's see. Ask the people in your building how much it costs to clean about ninety different offices several times. Also, I, and I don't know. I don't. I don't run into the people in the building. Has the welfare case been discussed with the auditor? Sorry if I missed it. We didn't discuss it today. It's been discussed. Of course, most of that involves federal money and not state money. And that limits the auditor's purview. Asked, uh, let's see, who said, um, somebody said something about Google. Where did I miss that? Didn't somebody say that? Google spent a million one day on a data center disinfecting in Papillon, Nebraska. Interesting. I don't have any evidence of that, but I, if you say so, Okay. Of course, they're a, a private company and one million in a data center. How big's the data center? Most of them are quite large. 1.4 million square feet. Yeah. Okay. We should, uh, but should also keep in mind 
that, uh, oh, Papillon, I was there, says this person. Okay, so they spent a million dollars. But it's a 1.4 million square foot data center, right? I wonder how big Thalia Mara Hall is. It's probably comes out about the same. You think so? It's probably... million square feet? No, no, no. In terms of the cost per square foot is what I was trying to do. Extrapolate from that. Yeah. Okay. So that's fine. But, you know, Google's a private company. They can do whatever the heck they want to. That comes right out of their pocket. The taxpayers aren't paying for it. I also bet that Google had a contract. You know, I could be wrong, but institutional companies like that generally do things like spend a million dollars with a contract and a set of deliverables and terms and conditions. We're coming right back with a final segment today. Stay with us. Are we going to do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. and Mel, the trio forming Grand Funk Railroad. By the way, the vocals there is the drummer, Don Brewer. It's a cool video of him in the studio, of them in the studio recording it. They go through it a couple of times, but it's really neat. Uh, That's just good old hard-pounded drums on the Ludwigs there. I think that's what Don played. From Flint, Michigan, by the way. Gerard, on the ceasefire text line, Mo says, Gerard, you should know by now Democrats want the top 10% to pay all of the taxes. No, I really think they just want the top 1%, Mo's. The top 10% do, in fact, pay 75, roughly, percent of income taxes uh, in the country. Something that I find interesting here in the state of Mississippi when you get into the debate about the uh, the income tax, of course, which we... Uh, there was bills, of course, you remember, in 22 from the House, originating in the House, to eliminate the income tax. And you're seeing this become a very contentious issue in the race for lieutenant governor. I think most people believe that Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman was the holdup on getting the income tax repealed in the state of Mississippi, eliminated. Of course, remember the first bill to pass the House, increased sales taxes in order to eliminate the income tax in a very short period of time. And then that received lots of objections, and there were some changes made to that. But what it involved was eliminating the income tax with certain revenue thresholds, changed the thresholds from the original bill that also increased the sales tax, which would have required, based on projections, 10 to 12 years to eliminate the income tax. And it would have also required the state to make, or the bill at least did, to make cities whole from the loss of income tax, uh, pardon me, sales tax revenue. Many cities in the state rely on sales tax as their chief source of revenue. Some, they get sales and property tax, but for the most part, sales tax is their chief source of revenue. 
So if we give some sort of effort, which we couldn't even get through the House this past year, but if we get an effort, and if, if the thought is, well, we've got to vote for somebody different so we can eliminate the income tax, which I'm all for, I just keep in mind that really in order to do that, for all intents and purposes, without increasing other forms of revenue, such which is really sales taxes from a state perspective, you're looking at a long period of time to phase that out because it produces about half the revenue in the, for the state. Sales and, and uh, income taxes uh, sum up to, I think, just a little less than 90% of total revenue for the state. So that would be... It just needs to be talked of in that con- context. That's the only point I'm making. I, you know, it's something else that always fascinates me is that a lot of people that objected to increasing sales taxes as a way to rapidly offset and and then affect the elimination of the income tax support the fair tax, which is a sales tax, a national sales tax. So I, I struggle understanding how they can be for it at the federal level, but not at the state level. Now, I understand the idea would be that you would eliminate the income tax. Same, same exact model that was proposed by the House here. Eliminate the income tax, increase sales taxes. You can get that done in a short period of time, two to three, four years. And that's being pushed back. A lot of people say, no, we can just eliminate the income tax without doing that. Well, as long as you don't, just don't blow a hole in the budget, sure. But you're talking about almost 50% of revenue just gone. You say, well, we need to cut costs, spending. I'm all for that. 50%? Show me how you do that. I hear you, though, Mose. So just like, just like Thomas says, we could just eliminate the income tax and slow the pace of government spending. So I assume, Thomas, that means that you're opposed to the teacher pay increases that went into effect last year. And you, you're going to come back and say, no, we need to eliminate and cut a lot of the administrative spending. I'm all for that as well. It doesn't even remotely come close to the amount of teacher pay raises. It wouldn't even come close to it. If you eliminated all of it, it wouldn't come close to it. That is true. How does half of the voting public more than half not see through Biden's lies? Talking about Shaq Bully and Biloxi says, you know, Trump could give everybody a million dollars, cure every disease known to man, and suspend income tax indefinitely, and a certain segment would still despise him. I just simply made the point, if Biden put those same policies into effect, were able to achieve those same results, there's a lot of people in the country that would hate Biden just the same. It's just we're so focused on figures and not policy, I fear. But we're out of time here today. We're at blood services tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.